Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, as always. Uh, delighted to be joined this week by Dr. Rich Milner, who's a professor of education at Vanderbilt University. He wrote a really fascinating book called Start Where You Are, But Don't Stay There, Understanding Diversity, Opportunity Gaps, and Teaching in Today's Classrooms. It was a fascinating book back in 2010 when he first wrote it. It's just been republished by Harvard Education Press. Rich is a fascinating thinker, and I'm really excited to, to get his perspectives, not just on his book, but also on the really complex world that we're living in here in 2020. Rich, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you so much, Mike, for the invitation. I'm really honored to be here. Yeah, so you've been tracking this, as we said, when we were prepping, your dedication of the book was to your twin daughters who have just turned 10 or in their 10th year. So 10 years ago, uh, you put together this book, which is talking about uh, opportunity gaps and teaching in today's classroom. Still so relevant that, that it's now being reprinted and updated. And then obviously in light of the, the complex year that we're living in, where in light of COVID and Black Lives Matter and in light of George Floyd and everything, uh, the world is extremely complex and being a teacher is, is extremely uh, challenging. And throughout everything I've read from you, you've talked about the importance of, of empathizing. Teachers have a tough job, but I think a lot of what you talked about back in 2010 is still extremely relevant. Can you provide a, a top level framework for our listeners around, you know, what you were trying to go after when you, when you put this book together? Yes, I think that's a really great question. When I, when I wrote the book, I was really interested in supporting, at that time, you know, in 2010, I was working with pre-service teachers, so teachers who were yet to go into classrooms, pre-K through 12 classrooms, full-time. So, yep. and I was looking for a text that really allow teachers to reflect about, think very seriously about the role of diversity and equity mm-hmm. in ways that could really complement the fabric of the content in which they uh, would be teaching. Mm-hmm. And so the initial goal was, I, I really was looking for a text that allowed me to help teachers cultivate learning related to race. So many of our, of our teachers entered the classroom without any conceptions of race, mm-hmm. or very little. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them uh, were white, they were middle class, they had great intentions, mm-hmm. but they carried with them a colorblind orientation, if you will, mm-hmm. that did not allow them to pass their own race and their own white privilege, uh, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And I often say that the issue, and one of the things I've tried to help educators understand in general, is that the issue is not so much of people living in white bodies mm-hmm. as much as it is about how people use their whiteness to maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought was really important in this work and developing the framework was to really help teachers understand and help developing teachers understand that they play a role. There are no neutral spaces in this work. Mm -hmm. They're either working for racial equity, gender equity, or they're working against it. Mm -hmm. And so the first tenet of the framework is this notion of the mindset of rejecting colorblindness. Mm -hmm. The second tenet is really about 
understanding cultural conflicts and uh, developing understandings of the ways in which our cultural ways of being, our cultural practices impact what we decide to teach, what we decide to emphasize in teaching, how we evaluate student learning, who we decide, you know, the students who we decide are smart and capable of success, mm -hmm. right? You know, are all sort of shaped by our own cultural experiences and our own sort of cultural ways of being in the world. Mm -hmm. the third tenet of the framework is around this idea of uh, rejecting meritocracy or right. really thinking about the myth of meritocracy. Mm -hmm. So for most of the students with whom I worked and I work, they believe that they are where they are, Mike, because they work hard, they followed the law and you know they've they performed and they are at their sort of rightful place mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in the work. And they don't understand necessarily how systems have operated mm -hmm. to privilege them, you know, in particular kinds of ways. So a lot of it is shepherding really good hearted, well-intentioned individuals, you know, as teachers into spaces where they understand that they are, they sit where they are mm -hmm. because of, opportunities that they've had that others may or uh, may not have experienced. The fourth uh, aspect of the framework is really related to expectations, rejecting these deficit mindsets that so many educators hold, right? And some of it is implicit. They, they, they only focus on what young people don't have. They, right. uh, the, the very way we think about uh, what they don't possess, it's this, this idea that students are developing in that every individual brings mm -hmm. a level of, of, of strengths and assets into yep. the community. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, fifth, the fifth component of the Opportunity Gap framework uh, really is around place and context. And so helping teachers understand that they are teaching in a particular place, mm -hmm. at a particular time, mm -hmm. with particular people, I think is also important in understanding place versus space. So understanding that the place might be broad, right? But the space in which they're working might be more macro, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of the, the intricacies embedded um, uh, in that. And so the initial book, the 2010 book, really attempted to showcase teachers in different contexts from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, from mm -hmm. different socioeconomic status, and so forth, really succeeding in populations with groups of folks who are very different than where they Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a lot to build on there. So thank you for going through the framework because now we can hit it at, however it makes sense in the context of the rest of this conversation. And I will say it, it definitely resonated with me. My wife, as I mentioned, who, who has a, a background in education as well, also was really struck by the framework. Also nice tables. I really enjoyed the tables in the book. They help sort of synthesize this stuff and really can help you kind of grab hold of some of this stuff, which can feel a little abstract at times. And it felt a little more practical and uh, applied in its orientation, which I, I definitely appreciated as well. So fast forward 10 years from the publication of that book. Now we're in a, a time that is more racially charged. Maybe the, the 1960s was the, the last time this level of activation against racial inequity and the right to protest against inequity and the restorative justice and all the things that are now very top of mind around Black Lives Matter 
Uh, and then on the other hand, you we have this once in a century pandemic is the way at least it's being characterized. Who knows? But, uh, you know, the, the confluence of those two things have been profound for all of us. And any many of the shows as a trend spotting show that we're doing nowadays are talking about those things. So I'd say taking the, the framework that you had, which I think is still enormously relevant, but the contexts in which it will be applied are, are kind of upside down. And, and then also, I think it's a time to understand and empathize with our educators so that you know where their heads are at, so that we can be smart about how we train and develop them. I'm happy to go wherever uh, you think makes sense, but I'd love to get some of your perspective on applying the framework that we were just talking about and sort of reaching people in different ways in light of the fact that the world's been uh, really transformed by the pandemic and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. When I wrote the 2000, 20 edition of the book, when I updated the book, mm -hmm. the book was published at the very start of the year. So right. prior to, to COVID, prior mm -hmm. to the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. of the Black Lives Matter movement. And there are uh, a, a number of, of people who are sort of getting on the bandwagon of working towards racial equity, racial, working toward, but you know, this is work that yeah. I, I've been doing for, uh, you know, decades. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, and a lot of the recommendations and a lot of the, the things that I have warned us against, those pieces are coming to uh, fruition. I would say about 30,000 people have read Start Where You Are, you know, mm -hmm. the first and second edition. And yeah. when I wrote the book, I really only thought, you know, the students in my class would read it. Right. And really, you know, my, my, my mom would read it, you know, <laughs> because that's what mothers do. Right. right? Right. They support their children. And mm -hmm. so, and so I thought, well, mama, you know, I hope you will, you will read it. And, who, and so here we sit and I, it, it's encouraging. And I really wrote it in a scholarly way, but I wanted to write the book to your point in a way so that people could pick the book up mm -hmm. and find it to be useful. Yeah. So the book really is written and with tools and so forth so that people, real people can pick the book up and, and make a difference. And so I move. I transition, I still address the opportunity gaps in the second edition, but I also focus in what, what I'm now calling opportunity-centered teaching. Yes. And that opportunity-centered teaching, I think, really uh, is a nice uh, transition, uh, a connected tissue, if you will, for the spaces in which we find ourselves. Now, you know, I talk about the importance of relationship building and as, a, as an anchor for opportunity Center teaching. It showed up in the first edition, mm -hmm. but I really hone in in this book. You know, I I was reminded of a a situation with with Nick Saban, who is the coach uh, at Alabama. Mm -hmm. and, and for those folks who don't know about, but Nick, let's just say he's a pretty darn good coach, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, and so some of some of his players were being interviewed, and the reporter asked the player, so what is it about Nick Saban, right? That, you know, you, you, know, you, get, up, you get up early to do PT, you are so committed, you know, it's almost like you're walking through a wall for Nick Saban. And, this, and those young people uh, responded by saying, yes, because I believe he'll walk through a wall for us, mm -hmm. right? Corey mm -hmm. Lassen Billings reminded me of that story. And that to me, that resonates, right with, right, right, with where we are now in this moment. Like, our young people need to believe we will walk through 
a wall for them, right? Yeah, and so, yeah. and so what that means is we have an op- we have a great responsibility, but we also have a great opportunity to reimagine what education is and is going to be mm-hmm. moving forward. We do right. not have to go back to the way in which we have done education in the past. And mm-hmm. so I'm more hopeful now, Mike, than mm-hmm. I've ever been in mm-hmm. my entire career. When I see the protests of young people, and I see the faces of, of young people from varying wa- various walks of life, yeah. life you know, young uh, folks who, are, who see and are willing to step up and, you know, coupled with the fact that we are living through COVID, right? right. Um, you know, jeopardizing their own health, mm-hmm. right? For the right. sake of racial justice, mm-hmm. I am more hopeful now than I've ever been, uh, you know, in the past. And so with that, I think as teachers, we're going to have to really step up and recommit, reevaluate the ways in which we've done education in the past. One more thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- there are people uh, who talk about, uh, you know, researchers who talk about this idea of schooling versus education, right? Mm-hmm. And I really hope that teachers, uh, especially in this moment, do two things. One is I hope they will remember their why. Like, why is it? Like, because I think sometimes we, as educators, you know, they give so much, we give so much, and we sometimes forget why we, why we, why we started this work in the first place. And yeah. then secondly, I hope we're in places where we will say that we, we want to do away with, we want to reimagine schooling practices mm-hmm. that really perpetuate and maintain the status quo and push us towards racial, gender, sexual orientation, uh, ethnic transformation in ways that are liberating for all of us. Yeah. That's great, you know, and that's uh, it's great to have hope these days. In particular, uh, I think is uh, is something that is at times in in scarcer supply than I'd like, at least. So so it's great to hear you espousing some hope here. One of the things I thought was really striking in the book, in terms of its context relative to today, is that I think in 2010 and even prior to say May of this year, you would still have to make a case to say we need to feel comfortable talking about race in schools, in K-12. It's still maybe debatable, but the debate is t- t- to a large extent, I think, lost. You know, it's past, like that moment is past. I think you can't not talk about race. Although I know folks will continue to advocate for it and that, that's why we wanna be ready, have folks like yourself and, and I'll do my part to, 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 to engage in that debate if, if folks feel like you shouldn't be having that type of conversation. But I feel like a lot of people are more ready to kind of clear that hurdle maybe than at any other time prior. Is that an opportunity to, to seize on that? Well, A, A, do you agree? And then is that really an opportunity to seize on that? Like our mindsets changed. Are, are white educators more ready to accept some of the some of these mindsets as yes i've engaged that in that that way of thinking it's an opportunity for me to learn rather than maybe the the more defensive yeah other people are like that but but i'm great you know so is the consciousness uh, shifting that's happening something that's net beneficial to uh, a lot of what you've been talking about in your book yeah you know i uh, i often found uh when i when i started my work attempting to to help teachers get better uh, in their work. I used to spend a lot of, you know, the first 
three, four sessions of my of class sessions of our class sessions, attempting to just make the case right. that race was salient to their uh, experiences. I'm finding more and more that that teachers understand the importance of race. What I'm also finding, however, is that it's it's a challenge. It's still challenging for them sure. to engage in in deep ways. And so I think rather than vilify or critique teachers, we really have to develop ways to support them uh, again in their journeys of, of getting better. But I would also like to add that it's not only talking about race, right? You know, first of all, like if you're in this profession, this is race work. Not because Rich Milner says so, not because you say so, Mike, right? But because all the data points say so. Yeah. So, you know, can you, I always say, can you imagine an oncologist not studying, studying or talking about an aspect of cancer right. because that oncologist feels uncomfortable, right? right. right. Like, you know, like, this is race work. Right. So if, if, if that's not what you feel comfortable doing, you got to do one or two things. You got to build that muscle of comfortability or mm -hmm. got to find another, find another you know, place to, 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 to go and do, to, to do work because this is race work. And until we place that, uh, until we uh, penetrate that race piece, we are not going to get very far, even within this moment. Right. The other point that I want to make is, it's not only about race and racism, but it's also about what some of my colleagues are calling anti-Black racism, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between talking about racism generally and talking about anti-Black racism. What we're experiencing in this country is anti-Black racism at a rate unlike anything we've ever seen mm -hmm. uh, in the past. In a lot of ways, we're taking backward steps when you look at the national discourse and so forth, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, discourses forward. So when you think about the murders of Breonna Taylor and mm -hmm. George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Rakia Boyd and Antoine Rose, you're talking about anti-Black racism, mm -hmm. not simply racism. That's the first point that I think is uh, going to be essential for educators writ large to think about, not only in pre-K and, uh, you know, through 12, but also in higher education mm -hmm. as well. And, it's, and then the, the third point that I want to make here is sometimes it, we, we do everything in our power to, to talk about diversity and equity and inclusion broadly, but we won't say Black Lives Matter, right? right? Mm -hmm. So you talk about relationship, Black students need to hear teachers say it. Right. Right? right? Like in this moment, I need to hear mm -hmm. my white brothers and sisters say yeah. Black Lives Matter, right? Right. right? Rather than this sort of, right? So I want to be clear here that the languaging around what's happening mm. is also essential and will be a, an anchor uh, for what's possible moving forward. Yeah. Isn't it in part that we don't want to say the wrong thing and avoidance and denial is something me and my co-host talk about a lot when it comes to race, like avoidance and denial just allows us to quote unquote, get on with our lives rather than do the emotional work of leaning into these conversations. And also some of it is accepting things about yourself that you're not proud of and just understanding, okay, that's, that's something for me to work on. But I, but I think modeling the right, way to engage in this conversation and and even like taking on a little bit of discomfort as a white person some things should hurt you know like there are some things that should not 
should not actually be sugar-coated and, you know, blows that shouldn't be softened. Like some of these things actually do need to be felt. Any thoughts on how to sort of build the space so that people can actually feel this stuff? Because uh, I think we tend, to, we tend to equate being emotional with danger and, and risk, uh, which part of, part of which I think is real, but, uh, but it feels like it's, it, it's probably more part of the, the teaching mission than the cognitive side, but we spend so much time talking about how to like tell them the right words rather than tell them how to work through their feelings, you know? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really uh, important perspective uh, and question. I want to go back to the title of the book, Start Where You Are, But Don't Stay There, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an intentional title. So if you don't feel comfortable, doesn't mean that, that that's the end of the story, right? right? You know, if you don't feel comfortable, you know, we have to, we have to work at it. Right. Because people's, you know, young folks' humanity right. is, is, is at stake here. Right, right. right. Yeah. So, you know, and, and is, it, can, is it emotionally charged? Charged, yes. Mm -hmm. Can it be challenging? Yes. Right? Yeah, uh, right, but, right. but not as challenging as it, it feels when, you know, I, I am, you know, walking down the street and racially profiled or when mm -hmm. I'm pulled over by the police. And mm -hmm. right. So that's even harder. Right. So, so, so it's, it's not easy work. And, the, and so it's really and what I try to do and start where you are is shepherd educators into a process of deep self-reflection. Mm -hmm. So and in and, and, and really powerful, I hope powerful uh, examples of what they can and, and should do, because what we know from good research is that individuals make systems and, and structures and, and, and mechanisms, right? So we often talk in the abstract that, you know, the system won't allow for or right. these structures are in place, but guess what? We're the structures, right. we're the system, we're the people who contribute to equity, mm -hmm. albeit unknowingly, in, in the work that we that we do and in the work that we don't do. Right. As well. And so, you know, reading together, book studies, building relationships between and among each other are, are critical. There's a, there's a beautiful book by Stevenson where he talks about, the title of it is Just Mercy. And one of the recommendations he makes is we should, you should spend time with someone who is not like you, mm -hmm. right? That's one of his big recommendations. It's very difficult to hate someone, to discriminate against a group of people with whom you grow to know deeply, yeah, right? right. And, and, and until we move outside of our comfort zones, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. and really try to get to know people outside of our own communities, mm -hmm. whether it's racial, ethnic, language, sure. we, we probably won't get very far. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about practically getting better. We, you know, that, that's, you know, one of the things that we can do very, very intentionally. And there are lots of prompts in the book to help get people there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it does provoke uh, some reflection, you know, and I, and I do think, it, to me, I kind of analogize to the, the gym metaphor, you know, pain is weakness leaving the body, you know, pain is, is ignorance leaving the body, you know, so like if, if this stuff hurts, it's because you, your consciousness needed to be elevated. You know, like I know for myself, like I, I did, there were times when I thought 
colorblindness. Like that was just how I thought. Like, you know, I don't, I don't see race. Like I actually had said, I've said that in my life, I'll own it, you know? And I had to, I had to understand why that was a position of privilege. But in some ways that made me understand it more, you know, because had I not fallen prey to it, I wouldn't really understand that it was real and I wouldn't be able to kind of embody it and then let it go at the same time, you know? So I think, I just feel like there's a real opportunity and, and, and I liked the way you tailored the message to, you know, a black teacher in a context, a, a white teacher in a context, and then tell it through the perspective of their individual story. It reminds me of Todd Rose's book, The End of Average, uh, which I've talked about in, on, the, on the show before, where each of us contains so many dimensions and so much complexity that it's actually just bad science. It's your, your outcomes will be bad when you, you assume that we all behave like, like an average. Instead, we all behave like individuals, so get to know those individuals. The thing I wanted to get at a, a bit as well is the, the idea of being community-based and being out where uh, your students live and also ideally living where your students live. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. When we, when we move to a place where we are able to spend more time together, mm-hmm. I talk about it in the, in the book in four ways. I talk about community immersion. I talk about community engagement. I talk about community attendance. And I talk about community investments. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of talk about them in this hierarchical way, like, right? Like the, the highest level is when you actually live in the community yep. of the students with whom you work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I realize that can be really complex when we think about, you know, charter schools or students who are not in neighborhood schools. But, you know, I found that to be one of the highest forms of mm-hmm. Of, of what it means to, to learn from not only stu- students, but learn from community members, mm-hmm. uh, family members, parents, politicians mm-hmm. uh, as well. A second layer, you know, is what I call community engagement. And it really uh, allows for, and it, and it actually shepherds and expects teachers to, you know, to read and study aspects of the community mm-hmm. uh, and to attend and engage, not only attend, but to engage in, in councils and board meetings and so forth, where they're bringing their, they're not only taking, right, but they're also offering their, 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 their strengths and assets as well. Let's face it, educators in, inside of schools have, you know, it's, it's resource rich. You know, they, right. we, we are, educators are resource rich, but sometimes those resources stay in the schools. Yes. What I'm suggesting here is uh, community engagement means I take those resources that I have, not that I'm the savior right. of a community, but that I have something to offer mm-hmm. communities in ways. And concurrently, I'm getting something as well because right. I'm deepening my understanding of what's happening in community. Right. Community attendance, someone might show up uh, at a basketball game or right. Uh, you know, or the lacrosse game or whatever, you right. know, it happens to be. But, you know, that is a level of, of attendance and a level of a community connectedness, if you will, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that uh, I think is really important for, for, for educators to consider. And then the, the fourth level, the level that I talk about is what I call community investment. Mm-hmm. And community investment is simply where do you get your hair cut? Right. right? Where right. do you start to, to, you know, to to and, and particularly in indigenous you know people who are you know indigenous to that particular place how right. do you invest 
your resources mm -hmm. uh, in those places. What about the mom and pop shop on the corner who lived in that people who right. live in that community? What about the you know the the restaurant that is owned by people in that community? How do right. you spend your resources? Where do you go to the gym? Right. right? right. You decide to go to the gym in that community. So there are lots of ways that we can think about learning from and learning with community. And those are just some of the examples that I attempt to outline in the in the book as real strategies related mm -hmm. to what can be and what should be. Yeah. So you spend a good deal of time in the book talking to white people, you know, like having white people be the intended audience because they are a large percentage, uh, like a disproportionately large percentage of our K-12 educators are white. So, so that's really the, the source of the problem in some ways is re-educating that population who's really over-indexed on whiteness. But then the other problem is recruiting and developing non-white educators. Can you talk about those two dimensions? Because it, it seems like you've done a good deal of thinking about both sides of that equation. Yeah, well, I'm hoping more than anything that what readers get when they pick the book up, is, when they read the book, is that I am suggesting that when teachers do the work mm -hmm. across different racial and ethnic backgrounds, mm -hmm. they can be and are successful across difference, mm -hmm. right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, in, in my 20 years of conducting this research, what I've found for sure is that teachers from any racial and ethnic backgrounds can be, and they are successful across racial, gender, other forms of difference. Mm -hmm. But here's the difference. They are, they are effective and successful when they do the work. It's not only about being a good person or having a big heart right. or having a friend outside of that, your, your, you know, your identity space, it is hard work mm -hmm. at, at pairing and, and connecting both your own racial, ethnic, gender, cultural identity with that of others and making connections to the content, the subject matter in which you are attempting to teach. Yeah. Yeah, it's so much about empathy. Uh, that's the word that I keep coming back to. Like just trying to put yourself in the in the context and perspective of of the the quote unquote other or the the student or the learner, you know, and and then also understanding like what are you what are you imposing on them in terms of your own model of of who they are, uh, yeah. and how much of that is based on real experience, how much of that is based on your own biases, you know, just being a little more comfortable with that. I would love to get more uh, from you in terms of how to act, like, like how to take action nowadays. Like what are the world, you mentioned uh, COVID and uh, you know, reaching, reaching people these days and the level that they need to be reached, I think is easier in person, face to face, shoulder to shoulder. How do we think about dealing with these, these issues when, when folks are also struggling with their health and their, their economic, economic livelihood? Uh, you know, teachers are, are concerned about even having to enter back into a physical classroom, putting their own their own health at risk. How do you build enough time to develop the, the racial understanding and, you know, renewed perspective on that when folks are really struggling out there? I think that's a really important point here. First place I would start is by saying 
that when we focus on achievement, if I hear one more person, I think I'm going to scream, right? <laughs> if I hear one more person talk about the fact that, you know, our most vulnerable students are going to be behind. Right. Us, right. And, and, and there's some validity to that. Let me, let me just say, like, I understand that concern. Right. But wouldn't the foundational conversation be we want to make sure all, every person in our community is well? Yeah. Every person in our community, you know, and I, and I talk about that in the Opportunity Center, right? you know, psychological and emotional state. Yeah. So right. Important, right. So, you know, on the, on the one hand, absolutely. Like, I, I, I understand that we want, we want to make sure certain uh, groups in, the, in our community don't quote unquote fall behind or don't, don't, you know, but I don't care how great the curriculum is. I don't care how great your instructional practices are. If we are not deliberately and carefully attending to the psychology mm -hmm. of the, the mental health of our young people and our teachers, yes. we're going to get the, the very, the very best. Right. And so, so I want to just, I want to just, just start there. And so, you know, what I've tried to argue in, in, in the work and what I've tried to advance is that rather than focusing on achievement, in fact, I would argue we don't even, we don't have achievement gaps anyway, but we really have uh, gaps in caring and we have mm -hmm. gaps in grace and gaps in vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And when you talk mm -hmm. about grace, administrators really need to have a lot of grace with their teachers. Mm -hmm. And in a very similar way, teachers, I'm begging you, have grace, mm. of, you know, with the students and the families with whom you're working. Mm. You know, part of, of how we, we get to uh, and reimagine, again, thinking about po possibilities and opportunities mm -hmm. here, is we, we move into a, we shepherd ourselves into a place where we understand that while you're hurting and the things that you're grappling with and going through, so too are family members. Mm -hmm. so or, or your children or your students' family members. And so on a macro level, I'm actually arguing, or I don't want to say argue, that's not what I mean, but I'm I'm putting forth <laughs> the notion that we should put a moratorium on, on standardized testing. Mm -hmm. Right? Like I don't think in this moment that is not what's most important. Right. So test test scores, right? Right, right. We should, we should put a moratorium on on grades mm -hmm. that go on students' uh, formal transcripts. Forever, right, right, right. I think we should, you know, of course, we need formative assessments, yeah. but but again, how can we use this moment to get better? Like mm. sometimes, you know, we think because we've done a thing in a way for so long that we don't need to, you know, to to make shifts. And so when we think about COVID and we think about Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Like, what you gonna do when turning in his or her or their assignment? Right. Yeah, what are you gonna do when a student, a young, a young person, can't log on right. uh, to the internet because right. the internet is, you know, they don't have access or right. Right. with the computer, or or when our older students won't log right. in, right? Right. Just, right. right? Yeah. What's you yeah. gonna do? What are you gonna do when the when a young person we are face to face again, right? right? When a young person doesn't have his, her, or their mask on, right? right? Right. What, what kind of dress code violate? Like we have an opportunity mm -hmm. to to deeply reimagine how we do school. When mm -hmm. you think about what's really happening with this notion of push out and push out by push out, I mean that you know, we often talked about it related to 
dropout, right? Uh, uh, but now, you know, Monique Morris and others, you know, we've really reconceptualized what's happening. And when we talk about how particular bodies are pushed out of school, right? Mm -hmm. uh, let me give you an example here. So black students represent about 16% of the general population, right? But they represent about 32% of students who receive in-school suspensions, mm. right? Black mm. students represent about 16% of the general population, but they represent about 40% of all students who experience outside of school suspension. What are you saying, Rich? What I'm saying is, you know, when we talk about achievement gaps, no wonder, right? right? We, you know, like the students are, are, are not receiving so many instructional hours, right? right? And so my point is, what can we do differently? We can reimagine push-up. Right. We can decide right now that we're going to, we're going to amplify grace, mm -hmm. that we're going to amplify vulnerability, mm -hmm. that we're going to allow our hearts, right, to connect with our heads mm -hmm. in the fight to, to try to get better. That's some good stuff. We're 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 really at time. So uh, I always love to ask our our guests what what trends are you observing in the world? What's capturing your imagination these days? Sounds like we talked about a lot of them as, as part of the show. But uh, any parting thoughts? Like anything's emerging? I definitely love the 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 courage to to have hope about where we're heading in education. I think that's uh, that's huge. Any final thoughts as as we wrap up here? Yeah, I I really appreciate that question. I will start by saying that I always say that my best bet uh, is on teachers, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, do I think teachers are perfect? No. But when I think about the, the, the possibilities of what can happen in the lives of young folks, mm -hmm. I am a, a living witness, as my grandma would say, <laughs> of what you know, educators can do, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the power of what it means to have an educator committed to the power of having an educator who will not let their, their students down. And so I am more hopeful, as I mentioned at the beginning mm. of, uh, of, your, of the segment here, that I am more hopeful now than I've ever been in my career. Mm. Uh, I, I hope that we will listen to young people. I've, I've been pushing for a young people series where schools are consistently listening to young people. I'm pushing Black Lives Matter leadership you know, uh, team mm -hmm. where teams are, of educators and students are working together to really tease out and peel back the layers of what that actually means. Mm -hmm. I'm pushing for the resurgence of what they call the morning meeting. One of the things I love about elementary teachers is they understand that you know, you got to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, when those young people walk in, that, that morning meeting, allowing those, those, those young people to talk to you about what's going on with them. Why don't we stop that at third grade? Why don't we stop it at fourth grade? I think it's pre-K through, you know, I teach graduate school. Yeah, right? I, I could still use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we need, we need those, those opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I would, you know, just sort of, I guess, end by saying, that teachers, you, we, we need you to be whole and we need you to, to take care of yourself as well. Yeah. When you're well, when you, you know, eating right and exercising and, and reading and to, to, you know, sharpen your skill set and, mm -hmm. and, and 
holding each other accountable with colleagues and so forth, we have a better shot of your being even more outstanding with, with the young people with whom you are working. Mm-hmm. Profound words, deep stuff from uh, Dr. Rich Miller, professor of education, Vanderbilt University. Where would you direct folks if they wanted to learn more, if they wanted to find, uh, find out what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. My email address is rich, R-I-C-H, dot Milner, M-I-L-N-E-R, at vanderbilt.edu. I check every email. It might take me a couple of days, mm. but I respond to every email I get, and that I'm on Twitter at H. Rich Milner, M-I-L-N-E-R. And uh, so feel free to follow me, DM me, Mm. uh, or send me an email and I will respond. You know, what I've come to understand is that some students are going to succeed in spite of us. Other students are going to succeed because of us. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Deep stuff. So thanks again, Dr. Dr. Rich Milner. And we'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. Mm -hmm.